Well, good morning, South Winds. It is so good to see all of you, even if you don't want to talk to me right now. Let's try it again. I just want to make sure you're there. I, I think you're there. I see you out there. Good morning, South Winds. Hey. Great day. Great day to be together uh, with the Lord's people. We're so grateful for this opportunity to gather. It's been such um, such a privilege these last few weeks to be able to see your faces, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. Um, today is, I think, going to be a great day. Already has been, but it's going to get better, as Chris mentioned, because we are celebrating baptism this afternoon. And I just want to reemphasize, if you are ready to take this step, and if you've never been baptized, you have trusted in Christ, you've given him your heart, you've turned in repentance from your sins, you've trusted in his death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins to give you eternal life, uh, then you need to take that step and be publicly baptized to profess your faith. And so we're going to have that chance today. If you'd like to participate, um, we have several pastors that are here. Um, pastor Chris, you've already seen, he's heading over that way. Uh, pastor Chris Martinez, our life groups pastor, is right here in the front. Pastor Marco, I don't know where he went. Uh, where he's right back there, uh, but they're around and there's other people around, and just find someone to talk to and bring, get to us, and we'll, we'll help you take those steps uh, to be participating. So today is part four of our teaching series this fall in the letter of First Peter called Hope for Exiles. And I hope you will get a Bible out, whether it's paper or electronic, and you will join me there in First Peter. If you are new to the Bible and you don't know where that is, just go to the very end of the book of Revelation and put it in reverse. And you'll get to First Peter pretty quickly. If you're not a Christian and you're with us today, we're so glad you're here. This is a, a great study for you to be part of because Peter sets out so many important truths about the Christian faith so concisely and so memorably. And as I've been saying to all of us each week, this is a, an incredibly relevant book for this time in which we're living because P Peter is speaking to people who find themselves increasingly out of step with the surrounding culture. They're, they're facing opposition from co-workers and neighbors because they follow Christ. Some of them have lost their jobs and are living in poverty. The government around them is, is turning up the heat on their faith, and they're beginning to realize that they don't belong in this world because they are citizens of another kingdom, God's kingdom. They are elect exiles. And Peter covers all kinds of relevant topics for elect exiles, like identity. We're going to see that next week. Who are you? Who are we? How do we define ourselves as God's people? Peter's going to talk throughout this letter about how Christ followers should live, especially in relationship to people who hate us for what we believe. He's going to talk about relationship to government. He's going to talk about persecution. He's going to talk about interpersonal conflict in the church. He's going to talk about marriage, about pastoral leadership, so much more. I'm so glad that we are studying First Peter this fall. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you saw with us that we studied First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. And I told you that these verses were telling us how God wants us to live as exiles. And I pointed out three rules for exiles. You may remember, fix your hope, live out of sync, and live with fear. And we talked about those things. And what we're going to see in today's passage is that Peter's continuing in this theme. He's continuing to give rules for exiles. He is still telling them how they should live in a world where they don't belong. And so today's message is just rules for exiles part two. 
And we're going to begin at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. So begin following along in God's word as I read. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this is the word of the Lord and God's people say, amen. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, during, during these days of hardship, uh, we say with the psalmist, if your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And Lord, we delight in your word even as we are afflicted and sorrowful. And Lord, we pray now that you would feed us today by your word. God, show us yourself and show us our sin and then show us our Savior. May we see Jesus today and may seeing him change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, as I said, we saw three rules for exile. This week, we're going to see three more, three more rules for exile. And you're going to see this week that these next three are aimed more at Christ followers, how we live with other Christ followers in community. And the first one is in verses 22 to 25. And I was trying to think of a, a, an interesting way to express what this truth is about. Honestly, I couldn't get it any better than Peter's own words. And so that's what I did. You can write this down. The next rule is love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So God commands his people to love one another earnestly, love deeply, love selflessly, love purely. And he says that this love grows out of a purified soul, which happens as we obey the truth. And there goes my document. It's back. It's kind of fun when things disappear. I do have, I have old school backup right here, so just in case something happens, I do have paper. But I'm afraid paper is going to get blown all over the place, so trying to avoid that. So um, this love is to be a sincere love. Do you see that? You might mark that in your Bible if you're marking things. This means it must be genuine. It means it comes from the heart. It has to be also, Peter says, a brotherly love, which tells us he's focusing this on uh, our relationships with other believers. Now, here's the question. Why? Why would this be an important rule or command for Peter to give to these elect exiles? Now, you could say, well, it's just basic Christianity, and that's true. But I also think that it is because when life is hard, as it is for exiles, when life starts to get tough, when the pressure cooker is on, think about it. Who are we most likely to lash out at? Not outsiders. We, we usually lash out at the people who we ought to love the most. And that's what Peter's focusing on, the people in the church. You know, I was thinking this week uh, because I heard a story that one of the things that we haven't gotten to do too much, and this really is a big deal for some of you uh, this year because of the pandemic, is 
We haven't gotten to go to Disneyland, right? Some of you haven't made that trip. And this is a question I'm going to ask, but it's rhetorical. You don't need to raise your hands uh, just out of protecting yourself, your reputation. But here's the question. How many of you have spent far, 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 far more money at Disneyland than you would ever want to admit in public company, right? It's an expensive place to go. And I've talked to some people who go there, and, you know, sometimes when you spend all that money, you get to the happiest place on earth, right? There's a lot of pressure to be happy, to have a great time. You must be happy, right? And we better have a lot of fun. And I I, I thought about this because I heard someone tell a story about one of those family trips uh, to Disney a few years ago, and they were walking along, you know, one of the paths, and they were behind another young family. And it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, right about nap time. And this family in front of them had about a four-year-old boy, and he was losing it. He was just sobbing. You know, parents, you know that, you know that crying when they, they cry and cry and <laughs> they like suck air and they can't even make a noise? It's that kind of sobbing. And, and, and his mom was just kind of dragging him along by the arm. And finally, mom had enough. And she stopped and she leaned down and she said to this child, we have paid thousands and thousands of dollars to be here. Pull it together. Now, I'm not judging that mom. I think I understand her. This happens, right? When life is hard, the pressure is on. Sometimes we say and we do things we shouldn't to the people we care about the most, the people we love the most, who matter to us the most, even our families. And it happens even in the family of God. We turn on each other when life gets hard. And maybe during this season of pandemic, of racial and social and political and economic turmoil, maybe you found yourself judging and criticizing unbelievers. Maybe your heart has not been one of love. Peter is saying, we are brothers and sisters in the same family. We must love one another, love earnestly, love sincerely. Maybe he was remembering what Jesus said to the 12 disciples in the upper room when he told them to love one another. And he said, the world will know that you are my disciples if you, what? Say it. Love one another. It's a basic mark of what it means to know Jesus. You ever stop to realize sometimes when you're seeing what Christians say to one another on social media, in public, where everyone can see how much it damages our public witness as Christians when we fight each other? You realize how damaging it is to the, the witness of, of, of the body of Christ when we have internal division in our churches, when there's dissension and, and, and people separate and split apart, we, we need to remember who our real enemy, friends, is, and that is Satan, not each other. We cannot be the people God has called us to be if we're not standing side by side together for the faith of the gospel. And far too many Christians Maybe far too many churches end up standing face to face against each other, opposition, conflict. I wonder if any of you remember that movie. It's about 20 years old, I believe. It's called Remember the Titans. It's about the 1971 integration of black and white students at T.C. Williams High School, Alexandria, Virginia. And the, and the players in this movie represent the racial tensions that were present during the time and and tempers are hot, stuff is happening. But then the team goes away to football camp. And, and of course, Denzel Washington is the coach. Wouldn't you like to have Denzel as your coach? I mean, it's going to make it good. And, and they, they are, they're at camp, and they become a family while they're at camp before the season starts. 
And eventually, as you watch the movie, there's these great scenes of them playing together, winning games, them singing together in the locker room. They're becoming one. And at the end, there's this moving scene when Gary, who is one of the white team leaders, is in the hospital. He's been paralyzed from the waist down. And and Julius, who's one of the, the black team leaders, comes to see him, and he's in tears. And Gary's mom says to Julius, he only wants to see you. And these two guys who were once enemies have become family. And when Julius enters the room, the nurse there says, only Ken's allowed in here. And Gary says to her, Alice, don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. As Julius visits, he says to Gary, you know, when all this is over, we're going to move in the same neighborhood together. See, they stopped fighting. They became a family, and they excelled as a team. What an important word for us today. How easy it is for some of us, friends, just think about it. How easy it is for some of us to bring what's out there in here into the church. And we need to remember the real enemy, and it's not your brothers and sisters. So Peter is saying encourage one another, support one another, care for one another, love one another as a family. Because don't you see the family resemblance? We are brothers and sisters in God's family. I mean, if football can bring people together. How much more? The gospel. Love one another earnestly. And I want to say something. It's, it's probably not for those of you who are willing to come and sit outside uh, to go to church. But this is not a casual indifference to the church. You cannot love earnestly if you don't know people in the church family or if you only show up at church when it's convenient. And you cannot love people earnestly if you only love the people who are like you. There's nothing supernatural about that kind of love. Even the people outside do that. We love earnestly when our love is sacrificial, when we give our time, our energy, our money, all all these things we give to one another all for the sake of the gospel. And if you're not willing to do these things, then you may need to ask yourself if you're truly part of God's family. You know, one of the most remarkable things that got reported, it's still written down for us from history, early church is how much those early believers loved one another. In fact, one time the Roman emperor Hadrian sent a man named Aristides to go spy on the early Christians. And he came back reporting to the emperor, behold how they love one another. If people came and spied on our church, what would they conclude today? Would they conclude they love one another? You know, in some churches, unfortunately, it would be behold how they criticize one another. Behold how they judge and how they they wound one another. So let us love one another. Let our love for one another be the thing that marks us as Christ followers. So how can we do this? Well, Peter gives the underlying reason for this love in verse 23. Did you notice that he said, since... Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And he's just saying we love one another because God has changed us. He's made us new people. We've been born again. And and that phrase that Peter uh, uses at at the beginning of verse 22, having purified our souls, your, your souls by your obedience to the truth. Kind of a different phrase. This is Peter's way of describing salvation. And salvation, friends, is not just getting our sins forgiven. It's about obedience, about surrendering our wills to God. We obey him. Our hearts are changed. We're new people. And I just want to say if obedience is not something you think of ever, when you think of salvation, of being born again, then you don't fully understand the new birth. It involves obedience, surrender to God the Father. 
And notice how we have been born again, not of something that perishes, but of something imperishable. This seed that brought us life, true life, eternal life is the living and abiding word of God. I'll point out two things. The word of God is the source of our new life. We're born again, literally conceived again. It's a very dramatic uh, picture. Everything changes, new life. And Peter is just grounding this call to love in our new birth. And he reminds us here, this is how people get brought to life, how God brings people to life, through the gospel, the word of God. This is how God brings smart people and not so smart people. This is how God brings young people and not so young people to life. There's only one way people come to life, and it's hearing the word of God, specifically the gospel. By the way, kind of a side note, we should take from this that we should speak the gospel to as many people as we possibly can, because this is how people come to life, hearing the gospel. The gospel generates life. We tell them the gospel. So the gospel is the source of our life, or the word of God is the source of our life. God's word is also the sustainer of our life. It's the living and abiding word of God. And he tells us that this word is imperishable. Have you noticed Peter likes this word? He loves this word. He says the seed that God uses to bring life is always alive. It never dies. It abides. It, it nourishes and sustains us day by day. And that's why we need it. It brings us to life and it keeps us alive. And then moving to verse 24. In part of verse 25, Peter quotes from Isaiah 40. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now you may ask yourself, why is Peter quoting from Isaiah 40? And in this, this chapter, if you know the context, God is comforting his people. He's saying to them, I'm going to bring you out of Babylonian captivity, out of exile. Because those people back then were refugees living in exile just like the believers who are reading this letter. And Isaiah is proclaiming God's good news in Isaiah 40. He starts off saying, comfort, comfort my people. And he goes on to compare the surrounding nations around the, uh, the, the, the people of Israel. He says, they're like a drop in the bucket compared to God. He says, human leaders, powerful people, the most powerful people in the world. He says, they're like grass that withers. He says, you want to talk about human glory. It's like a piece of grass that dries up. And if you need a picture of grass that withers right now, just look around, right? We know about dry grass here. I mean, this is kind of where we live half of our lives. Grass dries up. It's here and then it's gone. But he is telling us that God is sovereign. God doesn't do that. God is omnipotent. And then he gives the main reason for that quote from Isaiah 40 in the first half of verse 25 when he says the word of the Lord remains forever. See, when all else is said and done, the word of God stands forever and we can rest in that reality. I just want to remind you right now at the end of September, no matter what happens in November, no matter what our government may do, no matter what our culture may do, the word of God remains forever. God is sovereign. God rules. And then in the rest of verse 25, he says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter says this good news, it comes to us in Jesus Christ where real comfort is. The one who has led us out of ultimate slavery, the one who is uh, out of the ultimate exile, the one who will take us home forever. This is the word we have. And so as elect exiles, he is telling us we have power to love one another earnestly. 
That's where your power comes from, to love, from the word of God. Here's the next rule for exiles, and this is from chapter 2, verse 1. And this is one of those places where our chapter divisions don't really serve us well. I'm not sure why they divided the chapter here, because verse 2 is tightly, uh, verse 1, chapter 2 is tightly connected to what's before. But the truth or the rule I want you to see here is we stop the sins that destroy community. You might think about it like this. In verse 1, Peter talks about the flip side of love. See, love is positive. Love is about action. But sometimes love is about not doing some things. So here's what he says. Put away. And that's the second command I want you to mark. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Uh, We know this is connected because of that word so. It's like the word therefore. So he's saying, therefore, because of what I've just told you about loving one another, because God has given us new life by his word, here are some things you should stop. He gives five things as examples, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And isn't it interesting to think that these are sins that we are particularly prone to when we're under pressure, when life is hard. These are the kind of things we do to people sometimes when we're in pain, when we're suffering, when we're losing out, when life isn't turning out the way we thought it should. Peter says, put them away. This image of putting away is really, we might more literally in our context say, take them off. It's a picture of taking off clothes that are filthy, smelly, disgusting. We don't want them on anymore. We want them away. And I was thinking one of the ways we can get at what Peter's telling us not to do is kind of turn these things around. If we stop these sins, what will we do instead? So think about it both sides. Malice is ill will towards someone. It usually involves planning to do evil. We want to hurt them. It sometimes involves rejoicing at the downfall of a person we don't like. And so in the gospel with our new life Jesus has given us, we, we, we put malice away. And if we're putting malice away, what are we putting on? Well, goodwill. We want good for people, not bad things. And then deceit and hypocrisy, you really kind of group them together because both of them are about something false or something dishonest. You know, we may have to wear masks during COVID, but we shouldn't wear masks in our relationships. See, if we're putting those things off, what are we putting on? Well, truth and honesty and transparency and integrity. And then envy, if we're putting away all envy, what are we putting away? Well, envy is wishing you had something someone else has or resenting that they have it and you don't have it. So we put, we put on love, which desires the best for other people. And if we're putting away slander, Well, you know what that is. That's hurtful, harmful speech. So we put on praise. We put on affirmation. We actively speak good things about other people. How is this going to happen? Because let's be honest. Some of us, you don't need to raise your hand, but some of you know that you're really good at malice. You have been at least. Some of us are highly skilled at telling lives and living a hypocritical life. And that may be going on right now. Some of us wonder sometimes if we might have the spiritual gift of envy. It comes so easily to us. It just flows right out of us, right? And some of us slander other people without a thought. Peter is saying, you have to take action. You have to stop. Put these things away. And again, isn't it interesting that many of these sins, they get expressed in speech. And I want you not to miss the contrast. This is a stark contrast to the word of God. 
How do we change the way we talk about other people? It's through, Peter says, the power of the word, the word that gives us new life and then sustains that new life. The people of God, friends, do you hear it? We need the word of God. Here's our third rule, final rule. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Peter tells us, crave spiritual nourishment. Notice how he just seamlessly moves into this next metaphor. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So here the command is, crave God's word. Crave God's word. And and Peter's using some vivid imagery here that it's kind of funny, may make some of us uncomfortable because long for the pure spiritual milk of the word means exactly what it sounds like. He's talking about breastfeeding, okay? Can you say breastfeeding in church? I guess you can. I just did it twice. And and in case you don't see that, he makes the connection explicit because we are to crave spiritual nourishment like newborn infants. It's kind of interesting how many scholars and commentators, they get to these verses and it's kind of like they just want to move away from this as quickly as possible because if you're a Bible scholar, you don't talk about breastfeeding. See, some people even think that Peter here is writing to new believers, but I actually don't think so. I believe this is simply an analogy about how we grow because all of us, no matter how long we follow Christ, all of us grow in one way, only one way. We grow as we're nourished and we get nourished as the word of God feeds us and changes us. Amen? And this shows us again how dependent we are on God's word for spiritual nourishment. You know, one of my central convictions as a pastor and a teacher is in the power of the cumulative effect of God's word over a long period of time. And that's one of the reasons why we often go through books of the Bible, because we believe that people receive nourishment through it. And you don't always see change tomorrow, but change is happening. Maybe you could think of it like this. Our our kids are grown. Uh, Dan and I had, had four kids, and it's like when your kids come to dinner, you know, when they were smaller, we'd gather them for dinner around our table every night, and we'd, we'd feed them. And as soon as they'd come, you'd look at them. They didn't look any different than the day before, right? But then you'd go up the stairs, and you'd see the pictures on the wall, and you'd realize, man, they're changing. They're growing up. How have they grown up? Well, they've grown up because they've come to dinner and breakfast and lunch. And it is the same way with God's word. We grow up over time as we are nourished. Now, I want you to understand something. You know, maybe you're confused about this. Maybe not. But my goal as your pastor is not for you to remember the points of my sermons. Truth of the matter is, a week or two after, I don't even remember the points of my sermons. My goal is to nourish you. And I teach and I preach with the confidence That as I feed you God's word and as you feed on God's word, not only by listening to messages on Sunday, but hear me, more importantly, friends, by feeding every day throughout the week, I'm confident that you will grow. Now, just to be clear, Peter's not using this metaphor in the same way it's used in Hebrew. Some of you may be thinking about that. In that, in that letter, milk is viewed kind of negatively. It's like for immature believers, the author says you need meat. But here... Peter is just saying, we all need milk. We all need God's word to nourish us. Maybe you remember the old ads. Milk, it does a body 
good, right? And you could say the same thing about us as Christ followers. Milk does the body of Christ good. Now, again, got to keep in mind, every time you're reading this, don't forget who Peter's writing to. These people are suffering. They're in great hardship. What do they need? They need strength. And what do we need today? We need strength. And where do you get strength? Peter is telling you, friends. He's telling you from the word of God. Are you weak? Are you struggling? Are you kind of drifting away because you're just not eating? Feed. Feed on the word of God. How many of you have seen the movie 1917? It's come out not too long ago. Uh, if you know this movie uh, from World War I, it's, it's set in the year 1917, in case you weren't clear on that. There's this scene uh, where these two soldiers that are the focus of the movie, these guys, they haven't slept, they haven't eaten, they've gone through the night, the war's raging all around them, planes are crashing, people are shooting at them, and they, they come on this cow that has just been milked, and there's this pail of milk sitting in front of this soldier, and he bends down, and he just starts guzzling the milk because he's so thirsty, so hungry. And it's this beautiful picture. We're in a war what do we need? We need the milk of God's word. We need strength, spiritual nourishment. We need pure milk. So don't try to get nourishment anywhere else. Be nourished on the word. It's pure. And then it's also, Peter says, spiritual. Now this word spiritual in Greek is the word logikos. And you can hear uh, how it's connected to our word for logic and logical. The ideas of rational and reasonable. It's only used one other time, and, and it's in Romans 12. And it, it, he's just telling us, this is the rational thing for you to do, a person who has been born again through this word, to find your nourishment in this word. So crave it, Peter says. You see, if, if, if you're a baby drinking milk, drinking milk is not a burden to you. It's a delight to you. And if you don't give your baby milk, it will be a burden to you, right? And so the command, again, it's not something we have to do. It's something we delight to do, and we delight to do it, Peter says. Look at verse 3. Because we have tasted. If, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have tasted the goodness of God, what do you want? You want more, right? Kind of an interesting play on words that Peter uses here. The Greek word for good is pronounced krestos. And you probably already know the Greek word for Christ is Christos. So he's saying Christ is krestos. Christos, krestos. Christos is krestos. Christ is good. God is good. Have you tasted? Do you want more? I want to point out real quickly three things that happen when we crave spiritual nourishment and we satisfy our cravings in God's word. First, we find strength. We've already been speaking of that. Psalm 119.92 says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Psalm 119.28 says, My soul is weary with sorrow. Are you weary with sorrow right now for some reason? The psalmist says, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. God will strengthen you. 
Second, when we enjoy God's word, our witness just flows from that. I want to maybe recast for some of you what evangelism is about. Evangelism, which is about telling the world the gospel. Evangelism, in one sense, is about us telling other people, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you see that? Uh, my wife, Dana, makes this amazing pulled pork uh, that we have enjoyed for years. It takes most of the day to make it. It's slow cooked and smoked over coals and all kinds of other stuff. And she makes these amazing sauces you put over it. And when it's done and, and when she's pulling it apart with a fork, can you smell it right now? You know, when we have people over and it's getting pulled apart with a fork, people start kind of coming around. They start kind of creeping, you know. <laughs> they start gathering and, and people start reaching in for a piece. And, and when we have people over who've never done it before, I have been known to take pieces out and take it to them. And I say, here, here, taste and see. You need to taste this. This is really good. And I'm just telling you, friends, if we're not tasting ourselves, we will not hold out God's goodness to others. When we know in our daily experience how good and gracious God is, we will instinctively want to tell others to taste his goodness. And then we'll say to people, I don't know what you're tasting. I don't know where you're finding your, your meaning in life, but you need to taste this. Nothing is as good as God. Are you telling people that? No one, when you're tasting how good the Lord is, no one has to tell you to go and share the good news. You just do it out of the overflow of your joy. God tastes good. I want you to know his goodness too. And then third, when we enjoy God's word, our relationships change. When the goodness and kindness of the Lord satisfies our soul, then we change into people who are good and kind Ourself. Think about this. The Bible, the word says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that brings us Christians, brings us life. And it is his kindness that leads us to repent of our sins every day that makes us more like Jesus. And so the more we get the word of God into our hearts and souls, the more we'll love other people, the more gracious and kind we'll be to other people, the more we'll be people who seek peace. I want to wrap up. Today and last week, these two weeks, by just telling you, and I want you to think about this. I want you, in fact, I want to just encourage you. You need to not just move on to the verses ahead of us. You need to move back, and you need to read what we've studied so far. Do that this week. Spend some time slowly thinking about what God is saying. And I want to tell you as you do that, so much of all we need to live as elect exiles is right here in 1 Peter 1 in these first couple of verses of chapter 2. I mean, just think back to what we've studied, what Peter has been telling us. Going back to verse 13, I just need to ask you today, friend, I need to ask, are you setting your hope fully on the grace that God has revealed in Jesus Christ? Are you finding your strength, your meaning in him alone? Because if your hope is in God, then you will not find it burdensome to live a holy life like Peter said. You want to be like your father who is holy. And if your hope is in God, you will live your life in the fear of God. You will live with reverence and awe of God, not of other people. <laughs> and, and I think, I think honestly that living in a time like this, living as, as exiles, is the perfect place and time to examine our fears. I've been telling you that we're living in a 
time when our nation is moving rapidly towards being a post-Christian culture. We're probably already there in so many regards. And there are a lot of God's people that are afraid. They're afraid of this. And Peter is reminding you as an elect exile to fear the right thing. I want to ask you today, why? Why would we as a church fear the shifting sands of culture when our God is the rock of ages? Why would we fear the words of a politician when the word of the Lord stands forever? See, there's so much hope in that. Do you see it? It doesn't depend on us. It all depends on God's sovereignty. Our God who is full of goodness and love and mercy. And I want to remind you, you've heard it before. God is not up in heaven looking down on America, wringing his hands with anxiety. And so people of God, elect exiles, Peter tells you, as your pastor, I'm telling you, conduct yourselves with fear, as we saw last week. Because our God, in his great power, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are new people, and we will live forever, and we will never die, so our hope should never die. And beyond that, Peter tells us we are the people of an imperishable inheritance that our God is guarding for us in heaven right now. So we don't need anything from this world. We don't need comfort. We don't need control. We don't need power. We don't need acceptance. Those are all idols of this world, and we need to give them up, and we need to accept that we are exiles in this world who don't belong here. But it doesn't matter because we have God, and we have eternal life, and we have an inheritance. And so, we engage this world. We don't isolate, as we talked about. We engage because we want others to know that life and hope, too. We want others to experience God's justice and mercy. We live with hope. Remember what we saw last week? Because God has ransomed us with the precious blood of his son. God gave everything for you. What else do you need? And so as people of hope, Peter is telling us that we, no matter how difficult life is, no matter how fiery and hot the trials may be, we should be walking around as people saying, taste and see, friends, taste and see, the Lord is good. This is where life is found. You can be born again. You can find true life. We have hope, and so we want others to know our hope as well. And this just puts everything into perspective. Do you see it? Do you understand? If the Lord is good, then no matter what we experience in this world, everything is just light and momentary. If the Lord is good, then his sovereign plan is nothing to fear, even if it just seems like pain right now. If the Lord is good, then his judgments hold no terror for us. Because the Lord is good, we can set our hope fully on Christ and his promises. We can walk through this world that is not our home in confidence and peace. But here's what I'm trying to tell you today. All this I've just been describing, we will not get there if we do not crave God's word. Because it is God's word that transforms our thoughts and renews our mind. It is God's word that fuels our hope when life tries to drain our hope away. So Southwinds, listen to me. I'm telling you, taste, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. His word is good. His word remains forever. So take that word to your family, to your neighbors, to the people you work with, wherever God opens doors for you, and tell them, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's been so good to me, and I want you to know his goodness too. I want you to know his beauty too. I want you to know him like I do. I'm telling you today that God is good. I'm telling you today that God is better than anything in this world that you might crave or long for. So crave him, long for him, long for his presence, long for his goodness above all other cravings. Because friends, Southwinds, we are elect exiles. And we're not home yet. But we're headed home. And we will be home one day. One day, we will see Jesus. One day, we will be able to tell him face to face. You are good, and your love endures forever.